If you have your Bible, go ahead and open to Psalm 27. Psalm 27 is where we are headed today as we continue our way through the Psalms this summer. Psalm 27. So seek ye first the kingdom of God. It's been a while since I've sung that one. And it may have seemed like a bit of an odd song to sing after dismissing children, because at least for me, I learned that as a child and, and often sang it, you know, growing up in vacation Bible school and children's ministry and, and things like that. Um, but really, it's not a kid's song. It's very simply just a, a true song. Uh, it's, it's a song that guides all. And in meditating on the words that Jesus spoke, seek ye first the kingdom of God. You know, another similar supposedly children's activity uh, is the game of hide and seek, right? I mean, how many of you played hide and seek when you were a kid at some point? Yeah? Uh, how many of you uh, play it with your kids or grandkids, right? You know, it's, it'll, it's a good way to pass the time, and depending on which role you're in, a good way to maybe have a moment of quiet and peace among children. Um, but, you know, it's a kid's game, and we think of it as a kid's game, except really it's, it's not a kid's game. You see, none of us ever stopped playing hide-and-seek. We've just learned much more complicated and sophisticated ways of hiding, haven't we? We've found different things to seek. You see, we are always seeking something. We're always seeking something. The question is what? What do you seek? What are you seeking? That's the question at the heart of Psalm 27. This is a psalm about seeking. So let's read it together as we reflect this morning. Psalm 27. Hear the word of the Lord. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked advance against me to devour me, it's my enemies and my foes who will stumble and fall. Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. Though war break out against me, even then I will be confident. One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. For in the day of trouble, he will keep me safe in his dwelling. He will hide me in the shelter of his sacred tent and set me high upon a rock. Then my head will be exalted above the enemies who surround me. 
At his sacred tent, I will sacrifice with shouts of joy. I will sing and make music to the Lord. Hear my voice when I call, Lord. Be merciful to me and answer me. My heart says of you, seek his face. Your face, Lord, will I seek. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my helper. Do not reject me or forsake me, God, my Savior. Though my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will receive me. Teach me your way, Lord. Lead me in a straight path because of my oppressors. Do not turn me over to the desire of my foes, for false witnesses rise up against me, spouting malicious accusations. But I remain confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. This is the word of God for the people of God. Amen. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you for the gift of your word and for the invitation to seek you. Lord, I pray that as we reflect on the words of Scripture together this morning, that you would sharpen our minds and soften our hearts, that we might know you and love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So Psalm 27. There's a group that I meet with every month. And we gather to, to listen to and share with and, and pray for each other. And we begin every single one of our meetings with a reading from this psalm. Right at the heart of Psalm 27 is an important, more than important, a, a, a radical statement that sets the tone for every single meeting that we have. It's verse 4. One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. This verse is right at the heart of Psalm 27, and it's this that I want to really dig into and reflect on together today. One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek. See, this brings us to that question that we just asked a moment ago. What do you seek? What do you seek? Everyone is seeking something. What do you seek? Now, there are some translations that actually bring out the depths of this verse a little more by using the word desire. Desire, good old King James. One thing have I desired of the Lord, that will I seek after. Or another recent translation, I have asked one thing from the Lord, it is what I desire. 
right? This question of seeking has to do with desire. What do you desire? And I wonder, what role does desire play in our spiritual life? What role does desire play in our spiritual life? I I imagine that for many of us, the image of being a really spiritual person often includes a very intentional lack of desire. Sort of like that stoic, glassy-eyed portrayal of Jesus in one of those old Jesus movies, right? I mean, you know what I'm talking about. He always seems to be looking into the distance, never quite making eye contact with anyone. You know, it's like, are, are you here? I don't know, right? This stoic portrayal. Uh, often we have, we have gotten this sense that being spiritual means not desiring. The church for a long time has really villainized this idea of desire. It's seeking to diminish or dismiss desire altogether. But, But Psalm 27 shows us that desire is actually at the heart of spiritual life. Desire is at the heart of life with God. So something that kind of helped me think about this, several years ago I came across a book by this contemporary Christian philosopher named James Smith. Some of you may have heard of him. Uh, and, And it really helped me to kind of get some language for this and understand this. He uses his background in philosophy and in theology to try to understand the world and our place in it. And he explores a number of different ways that there are to understand humanity who we are as people, what we are, how we function. So one way of understanding people is you are what you do, right? You are what you do. We see this view all the time, right? Workplaces turn people into these sort of cogs in a production line. You are the things that you get done. That's who you are. What have you accomplished? What have you gotten done today? That's who you are. Lawyers seek to prove or disprove criminal actions, right? So that a person in a trial becomes merely the sum of what they've done, right? They are a criminal, nothing more. Uh, that, that sort of thing will, will happen all the time. This way of understanding also will, will rear its ugly head in the midst of conflict when people are so quick to point fingers and keep tabs on all the rights and all the wrongs that have been done. But but ultimately, this way of understanding people, it falls so short. I mean, it's just, it's reductionistic. It takes away the fullness of what it is to be a person. Reduces someone merely to a collection of actions. You are what you do. So another way of understanding people is this, you are what you think, right? Like that famous phrase from another philosopher, Descartes, I think, therefore I am. You've probably heard that before. And we see this play out all over the place as well today, right? There's so much pressure from all directions to take a certain position on something, no matter what it is, right? This is what I think about it. Uh, you know, people argue it all out on social media and prove their point and, and so on and so forth. 
And although this view of people is perhaps a bit more sophisticated than the previous one, it is no less reductionistic. Right? James Smith, uh, as he's describing these things, he gets kind of humorous here, and he draws up this image. He says, this understanding, you are what you think, it, it just transforms people essentially into a brain on a stick. That's just, I, that's, you know, it's like a lollipop or something, but it's just a, a, a brain sitting there, right? But that's what this turns us into, just a brain on a stick. There's no meaning in laughter and joy. Uh, there's no you know, meaning in the beauty of sunrise or the sensation of sipping a warm cup of coffee, right? Brains on sticks have no business for enjoying coffee unless that coffee is going to give you more energy so you can get to thinking more, right? Right? That's it. And so finally, he suggests another way of understanding humanity, of understanding who we are and how we function. And, and this really gets to the heart of things. What he suggests is, no, it's not that you are what you do or you are what you think. He suggests you are what you love. You are what you love. It's what you love that ultimately determines meaning, significance, and direction in your life. Beneath all of our actions, all of our thoughts, love is the thing that drives us. Desire is the thing that ultimately moves us to do what we do, to be who we are. And so with all of this, he concludes by writing this. He says, what we do is intimately linked with what we desire or love. Desire shapes how one sees and understands the world. And so the key question for the Christian is first to consider the shape and aim of one's desire and to specifically seek to increase one's desire for God. What, what do you make of, of all these philosophical ponderings of James Smith? You don't have to agree with it all, but I think you might be on to something. Desire shapes how we see and understand the world. And so the key thing for us is to consider what is our desire and how might we increase desire for God? That's the conclusion that he comes to. And, well, thousands of years earlier, the psalmist was on to the same thing. One thing I desire from the Lord, this only do I seek. See, desire is not something to be diminished or dismissed, but rather directed toward God. In the 4th century, the great theologian Augustine described sin this way. He said sin is essentially disordered desire. Which means the opposite of sin is rightly ordered desire. Right? Not getting rid of it, but pointing it in the right direction. Desire is right at the heart of spiritual life with God. It is meant to be directed 
toward God. And so all this time that that maybe we've learned or spent uh, getting rid of desire has actually done great harm to our, our ability to know and grow in God. Because it is desire that leads us to God. Desire toward him. And so the psalmist expresses desire, directs it toward God. Well, what comes from this? What comes from the psalmist's desire here? Well, there are two primary things that that I see kind of thematically woven through the psalm. The first one is this, security. There's a sense of security. One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. There's a kind of security that comes with dwelling in the house of God. When our home is in God, we become unshakable. We become secure. This kind of security is expressed throughout the psalm. We see it in the opening verses. The Lord is my light and my salvation. So who should I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Can you hear the security in that? This groundedness. When the wicked advance against me to devour me, it is my enemies and my foes who will stumble and fall. Though an army besiege against me, my heart will not fear. The war break out against me, even then I will be confident. Right? The psalmist is so secure, so confident, so set. Again, down in verse 5, in the day of trouble, he will keep me safe in his dwelling. He will hide me in the shelter of his sacred tent and set me high upon a rock. And the sense of security is not only deeper than enemies, it's even deeper than family. In verse 10, the psalmist says, Though my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will receive me. Literally the word gather, the Lord will gather me. You know, it's as though we've been tossed to the wind, but God gathers us back up, draws us in, and gives us a place to belong. So what does all of this show us? Well, it shows us that when desire is rightly directed toward God, we become incredibly secure. We become grounded and confident. As people of God, we should be the most secure, least anxious people on earth. Christians should be beacons of peace wherever we go. Like the moment we enter a room, the atmosphere should start to change because we are carrying the peace of God with us. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Do we carry that with us? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? We should be the least anxious people in the world. But unfortunately, Christians are often incredibly anxious people. 
right? Anxious about the church, anxious about politics, anxious about cultural tensions. I mean, you know, name it. There are probably Christians who are anxious about it. Probably anxious not just because they're anxious, but anxious specifically because they're Christian. Uh, Christians are often some of the most anxious people. And I wonder why that is. What is there to be anxious about? Why is that? Maybe, just maybe, it's because we have often directed our desire to the wrong things. We've often looked to the wrong things. We've desired power and influence rather than service and sacrifice. So when we start to lose power, when we start to lose influence, we get anxious. But that was the wrong thing to desire in the first place. Many of us have desired comfort and ease rather than love and generosity. So when we get uncomfortable, when life isn't that easy, we get anxious. But maybe that was the wrong thing to desire in the first place. We have often desired the things of the world rather than the things of God. And so we've become an anxious people. Whenever we feel that rising sense of anxiety and fear, it's probably a good indication that our desires are misdirected. Because when our desire is ultimately directed toward God, we can say with the psalmist, though an army besiege against me, my heart will not fear. Though war breaks out against me, even then, I'll be confident. The psalmist's desire gives way to this deep, abiding sense of security. When our desire is toward God, we become unshakable people. But there's a second thing that comes from the psalmist's desire that I think goes even deeper than that, and it's beauty. Beauty. One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and seek him in his temple. Look, security is, is wonderful, but really security is just not negative, right? Security is just not a bad thing. That's what security is. But beauty takes us even deeper, right? Beauty is not just not negative. Beauty is positive, right? Beauty is wonderful. And here's the thing. We don't only set our desire toward God for the sake of security. We do it for the sake of joy, for the sake of delight, for the sake of beauty, the psalmist desires not only to be in the safe place of God's house, but to see the beauty of the Lord and delight in it. 
We hear this too in the opening words of the psalm. The Lord is my light and my salvation, right? God is our salvation. He's the one who saves us from danger, but God is also our light, the means by which we see and behold beauty. God is the very brightness of beauty himself. The psalmist hides in the safety of God's house. But then in verse 6, he also says, I will sacrifice with shouts of joy. I will sing and make music to the Lord. Right? It's not just about hiding and staying safe. It's about expression and joy and wonder. We don't only run to God to get out of danger. We run to God to get into God. That's what it's all about. And this is something that, that many of us have, have missed, that, that it's, it's been missing from what we've heard and from what we've been told. We've, we've often heard preaching that was all about getting out of sin, getting out of hell, getting out of whatever. But I'm here to tell you that the gospel is so much more than that. It's so much, it's so much better than that. It's not simply about security. The gospel is about beauty. It's about beauty. Life with God is about witnessing and participating in the beauty of the Lord. The beauty of God. It's about being part of the beautiful, joyful, delightful things that God is doing all around us. I wonder what are the ways that you can beautify the Lord with God. A lot of you are gardeners, actual gardeners. But no, a lot of you, you're planting things, you're harvesting things, you're, you're making flowers, right? Like, you're, you're, a lot of you are artists, right? I mean, you guys are doing this. What are the ways that you beautify the world with God this is what we're called to, to make the world a more beautiful place. Not just escape it, but to actually care for it. This is what God calls us to. Listen, whenever Israel was taken into exile, some of the very first people who got carted off were the artists and the creators, the beauty makers. Some of the first people, they're like, get those people out of here. Why do you think that is? Because beauty, art, creativity, these are things that show us God. These are things that give us hope. These are things that help us to see God, things that shine light in the midst of darkness. Every beautiful thing points us toward God in one way or another. Every beautiful thing. Because God is beauty itself. So, I mean, if you want to throw a bunch of people into exile, get the artist out of here. Because then they'll lose sight of God. They'll lose all hope. They'll forget who they are. But the psalmist says, my desire is to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. 
The temple is a safe place. We rest in the safety of God. But God is beautiful too. And that's what draws us. That's what draws us deeper. To gaze on the beauty of the Lord. To seek him in his temple. So this brings us back to the starting question. What do you seek? What do you seek? This question sits at the heart of this psalm. It sits at the heart of the gospel. This is actually a question that Jesus himself asked. Do any of you have one of those red letter Bibles, you know, where the the words of Jesus are in red? You've seen some of these before. Did you know that in the Gospel of John, the very first red letters, the very first thing that Jesus says in the Gospel of John is a question. What do you seek? What do you seek? It's the very first thing that Jesus says in the Gospel of John. You know, John has this wonderful poetic prologue about the Word and light and darkness and dwelling and glory. The Word became flesh, all of that. It's wonderful. But the very first words that Jesus actually speaks in the dialogue of John is the question, what do you seek? It's almost as if more than simply telling us stories about Jesus in the past, John wants his readers to know that Jesus is still asking this question right now. What do you seek? What do you want? What do you desire? And it's a question that we have to reflect on deeply in order to answer honestly. I mean, if we only say what we know is the right answer to that question, you know, we're in church, you know, what do I desire? Well, you know, God. If we only say the right answer, then we're just functioning as those brains on sticks. We're just saying what we know. We need to go deeper than those right Sunday school answers. What are the motivations deep within you? The things that, that guide your thoughts and actions. What are those desires that drive you every day? As a minister, I have opportunities to meet and talk with people about their spiritual lives. One of my favorite things to do. And I recently had the opportunity to talk with someone who was struggling in their life with God. She was desperately wanting to know God, to follow God, to, to journey deeper with God, but everything just sort of fell spiritually flat. It's like, I don't know, I'm trying this thing, but nothing, nothing's, nothing's doing anything for me. I mean, she knew that she needed to pray, to read her Bible, to, you know, on and on. She was describing all of these things. And, and as I was listening, I, I noticed a word that kept coming up. Should. Well, I know I should do this. I know I should do that. And, and here's the thing. Even if should is true, it's a really lousy motivator. Right? 
I mean, it, it just is. Because should usually leads to shame. Should usually leads to shame, which is exactly what this person was experiencing as they were reflecting on their spiritual life. You know, well, I know I should be doing this, I should be doing that, but I mean, it was just, it was just shame. So as we were talking, I just simply pointed out that word should that I kept hearing. And I asked, hey, where, where does that come from? Where's that word should coming from? And she thought about it for a little while, and we kind of realized that should was coming from all kinds of other people's expectations, all kinds of other people's desires for her and what she should be doing. But all this stuff was placed on her. And so once we were able to kind of name that, clear that out of the way, I was able to ask, so apart from all those shoulds and shouldn'ts, what is it that you want? What is it that you desire with God? And a very powerful conversation followed. Because we have to get beneath those things that have been cast on to us. Those shoulds that are really just shames, if we're honest. So Jesus asks us, what do you seek? What do you seek? And this is a question we need to linger with, to move past those things that have been placed on us and finally arrive at what is actually within us. What do you seek? Just as we sang a few moments ago, Jesus told us, seek first the kingdom of God. So as we direct our desire toward God, it's not just a passive desire that simply waits around. It's an active desire that seeks. That's why the psalm ends, wait for the Lord, be strong and take heart. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart doesn't sound like passive waiting around. It's an active waiting. An active desire that results in resting in the security of God, no matter what comes, and searches for the beauty of God in all things. Seek first the kingdom of God. That's what Jesus has called us to. And you know, Jesus also said, seek and you will find. Seek and you shall find. Seeking the kingdom, desiring the kingdom is not an empty pursuit. Seek and you shall find. Whenever we seek the kingdom of God, we can say with the psalmist, I remain confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. We will see the kingdom of God descending and all things being made new. We will see 
Death, die, and pain pass away. We will see this world transformed into a place that is truly the land of the living. This is our desire. This is what we seek. And until then, we wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart. Wait for the Lord. Amen.